Are you interested in a true crime podcast with a different point of view with hosts who have seen the justice system from the inside? Then you should check out Alice and Brett and their show, The Prosecutors. In every episode, Alice and Brett bring a unique perspective as full-time prosecutors to the most famous and debated true crime mysteries, whether it's John Benet Ramsey, Maura Murray, Scott Peterson, or the Delphi murders, they dig deep to bring you the details that you won't hear anywhere else. The Prosecutor's Podcast is about more than just storytelling. Alex and Brett will walk you through the legal problems lurking behind every case. They break down the complexities of the criminal justice system with a little bit of humor and personal touch. And it's not just true crime. They bring the same training and approach that they've learned as prosecutors to classic mysteries like the Dialtov Pass incident and the ghost ship Marie Celeste. So if you're looking for a true crime podcast with a different point of view, a different approach, The Prosecutors is the podcast for you. I listen to this one myself. Highly recommend. Britt and Alice are great. You can find The Prosecutors wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. True Crime Cast. Hello and welcome back once again to True Crime Cast. I'm Jamie here with my good friend John to bring you guys a fresh case after spending a couple weeks on the Lillilid murders. John, how you feeling, buddy? Hey, Jamie. I'm doing great, man. Always good to be back in the booth with you. I hope our fans enjoyed the last couple of weeks. I know it was a little different than what we have been doing, but I think the phone interview went over very well. Really excited to get that out to our listeners. We really appreciate the response to those episodes that we've gotten both through dialogue online and sheer numbers of downloads. We do ask if you would just take a couple seconds, go on and leave a review and a rating for us. It's a really quick process, but it would be a big help to us. And in response, we have something for our listeners. Jamie, we are very excited to offer our listeners a chance to get a free week trial of HBO on Amazon Prime. Now, I know several friends of mine that have been watching shows like Game of Thrones. I've never had the chance to watch that show because I don't have HBO. So, Jamie, I'm super excited to get this out to our listeners. So... If you would like to get the free week trial of HBO on Amazon Prime, please see our show notes for a link to follow to get that. You can also find that link on our Twitter page and our Facebook page. Yeah, John, it's a really good deal. Uh, This is our second round of an affiliate offering, and we hope our listeners take advantage. Jamie, you've spent a lot of time researching this very famous case. So, brother, it's your turn. You have the floor. Please get us rolling. John, we're going to talk today about a man named Dennis Rader. 
Raider was born March 9, 1945 in Pittsburgh, Kansas. His parents were William and Dorothea Raider. He was the oldest of four brothers, and by everything we know, he had a pretty normal childhood. Although in hindsight, some people have pointed out that he did do some questionable things like torture animals, which as we know, it's a red flag for future violence. At the age of 21, Raider dropped out of college and joined the Air Force. He served in the Air Force from 1966 to 1970, and shortly after he left the military, he met his future wife in Park City, Kansas. Her name was Paula Dietz, and he married her in 1971 while he was attending Butler County Community College. During this time, he worked a variety of odd jobs. He worked at a grocery store, an outdoor supply store, and eventually landed a pretty permanent position at ADT Security Services beginning in 1974. We'll talk more about why that's important later. Raider has two children who are now adults. Their names are Carrie and Brian. He went on after completing his coursework at Butler County Community College to graduate from Wichita State University with a degree in criminal justice. In this time of his life, when Raider was graduating from college and raising his family, he served as a Boy Scout volunteer and troop leader for his kids. He was the president of the Lutheran Church Council in his town. And he also happens to be one of the most notorious serial killers in American history. Better known as the BTK Killer, Raider killed 10 people over the span of 17 years there in Kansas. While his murders were brutal and merciless, his methodical approach and the breaks that he took between kills really set him apart from most serial killers. According to Raider's own confession, his motivation to kill always came from what he called Factor X. He later attributed Factor X to being a demon, and Raider insisted that all serial killers have this, and that it takes complete control and creates unbreakable desires to kill. Raider actually drew Factor X for authorities, and it's something that looks like a frog-like creature. Now, he claimed that he experienced Factor X in the 8th grade, but it did not push him to actually kill until January 15, 1974, and while that may be very true, he started developing his methodical approach weeks earlier. BTK stands for Bind, Torture, Kill. That is his M.O. when he finally gets his victims alone. However, long before he actually confronts his victim, he starts a very specific process. The first step is Factor X telling him that he needs to kill again. Next, he would begin what he called trolling, during this stage, he simply spent time in public trying to pick out his next victim. Once he did so, he became completely fixated on him. Once the project, as he called it, was chosen, he began stalking them. He learned their name, their residence, their routine. That way he could choose a set of circumstances in which Raider believed killing the person would be the most convenient. He always targeted women and often those that lived on corner homes because that allowed for multiple escape routes. When the time came to execute his plan, he would park several blocks away and walk to the home of his next project. He often attempted to enter the home under the ruse of being a repairman or a serviceman of some kind, and for the homes that he had to break into, he happened to be an expert in home security because he worked for ADT from 1974 through 1988. Raider's first known murder was where he really started honing his techniques. 
although you'll see throughout this episode that he rarely had everything go perfectly according to plan. Like John mentioned, this first murder took place on January 15, 1974 in Wichita, Kansas. Weeks earlier, Raider had identified Julie Otero and became fixated on her and her 11-year-old daughter, Josephine. He stalked the family for some time, and he chose to attack the family when the father, Joseph, was not at home. He was hoping to isolate Julie, Josephine, and Joseph Jr. at the house. So he waited until Joseph's car was not home, and he entered through the back door. To his surprise, Joseph was home. He had actually been in a car accident a few days earlier, and his vehicle was still in the shop. So Raider walked into a home that he believed didn't have an adult male and found Joseph there. It's probably a good time to note that there were three other children in the Otero family that were not home. Danny, who was 14, Carmen, who was 13, and Charlie, who was 15. There was a documentary released in 2013 called I Survived BTK, and it followed Charlie's journey from survivor's guilt to peace. So going back to the murder itself, from the very beginning after entering the Otero home, his plan had been thrown off. He had not planned on Joseph being home. He pulled his gun and told the family that he was on the run and that he needed some cash and he needed their car. That was a common story that he told when a male family member was home when he broke in to kill his project. He escorted the Otero family at gunpoint to the bedroom. He put the females on the bed and the males on the floor, and then he tied them all up. Being a Boy Scout leader, he actually used a different knot for each person when clumsily tying them up with a rope. It said that he really didn't have a plan for tying them up, so there were times when he would put his gun down and tie a knot, or put his gun down, tie a knot, send somebody to another room. It wasn't a very efficient process of getting everybody tied up. He put bags over the male's heads, and then he went to strangle Julie with a rope. This was his first time doing so, however, and he had no idea how much pressure to use or how long it would take to kill her. He actually spent that entire evening strangling the family members, only to have them continually revive because he had not been effective at killing them by strangling. At one point, Joseph was able to tear the bag off of his head and to charge Raider. He was quickly subdued, and Raider then tied a shirt around his head before putting another plastic bag on. Joseph and Joe Jr. ultimately both suffocated due to the plastic bags on their heads. There's actually evidence that Raider pulled up a chair and watched Joseph Jr. as he lost his life due to suffocation. He strangled Julie to death with a rope, and he took Josephine to the basement where he hanged her with one of the ropes. As became common in all of his murders, after he had killed everyone, he became sexually aroused and pleasured himself, leaving semen at the crime scene. DNA was really not a thing in the 70s, but this would ultimately come back to haunt him later and leaving that evidence behind. He also took trophies from each kill, which we've talked some about in previous weeks, some about with the Lilylid family. And in this case, he took a watch and a radio from the Otero home. Now, while his inability to strangle the Oteros was a problem at the time, this allowed Raider to feel a sense of power and control. So he carried that tactic over into his other murders. He would often choke a victim until they were unconscious, only to revive them and watch them choke again. Before we move on, Jamie, I think it's important that we specify the difference between a murderer and a serial killer. 
A serial killer, by definition, is someone who's killed two or more people with a defined cooling-off period. So if Raider would have stopped killing after the Ortero family, he would have not been a serial killer because there was no defined cooling-off period, even though there were multiple victims. His first cooling-off period was just under three months. Now, his next project, and Jamie, that's what he referred to him as, um, so that's what we're going to keep going with, was to be eliminated on April 4th, 1974. So that he wouldn't be surprised by another male waiting in the home, he actually broke into the house of Caitlin Bright before she returned home that evening. Now, he was not prepared for her, however, to arrive home with her brother, Kevin. But thinking quickly, he pulls out a gun and he gives him the same story that he gave the Orteros about being a wanted man and needing some money in a car. He had Kevin tie up Catherine. Then he tied Kevin up. We mentioned that he established some of the M.O. on his first murder, but he's still learning here as well. Later, we'll see that he actually has a kill kit that he'll take to other murders that we'll talk about. And in that kill kit, he has uh, ropes uh, and other kinds of weapons. But Jamie, for these first few murders, including Catherine Bright, we see him use things in the home to tie up his victims. So in this particular case, Jamie, he puts these two people in separate rooms and he begins strangling Catherine. He takes a break and goes and checks on Kevin, only to find that Kevin has gotten free. So at this time, Kevin charges Raider and Raider shoots him in the face. Kevin goes down and Raider continues to strangle Catherine. He starts hearing noises, however, coming from Kevin, who he assumed was dead. Kevin is able to get on his feet and actually is able to take Raider's gun from his shoulder holster. But for some reason, the gun wouldn't fire. Kevin tries to run away at that point, but Raider pulls out a second gun and shoots Kevin again. So Kevin goes down and Raider gives his attention back to Catherine. He's really eager to finish his kill and get out of there since he's fired multiple gunshots. Raider ends up stabbing Catherine because she's putting up a fight. It's reported that he stabs her 11 times, which ultimately led to her death. Now, while stabbing her, he hears the door open. Obviously, he assumes somebody, possibly the police, are coming into the home. But that's when he notices that Kevin, who has been shot twice at this point, has managed to get up and run out the door and run into the street. So, John, in his first two murders, Raiders had things go completely wrong. In the first one, there were people there that he didn't expect. That also happened in the second one. And he shot somebody in the face and then shot them again, and they still got away. He gets a ton of credit for being meticulous and thorough, but you'd have to think he was also pretty lucky not to get caught early on. Joseph Otero had broken ribs from the car accident and was able to fight back. Kevin Bright got his hands on a gun, but it didn't go off. I guess you could say that Raider had some bad luck and things going wrong, but if you really think about it, he was pretty fortunate up to this point. Absolutely, Jamie. And in our research and just listening to the details of these first two cases, I mean, anything that could go wrong went wrong for Raider. If Kevin would have been able to to fire a shot or to attack Raider in a way that would have hurt him, I mean, the next several cases that we're going to discuss probably would have never happened. So as bad as it is to say it, absolutely, he was definitely lucky to have gotten away with this to this point. After the murder of Catherine Bright, Raider took an even longer cooling-off period. 
It was actually around three years before he killed again. But just because he wasn't killing doesn't mean that he was completely inactive. There were rumors in the local prison at that time about inmates saying that they knew who did the Otero killing. There were people taking credit for Raider's work, and he wasn't going to have any of that. So in October of 1974, he wrote the first of many letters to the media. He wanted to be careful about not getting caught, so he actually hid the letter in a library book. Applied Engineering Mechanics in the local library. Probably not checked out very often. And he called the local newspaper, which is the Wichita Eagle, to tell them where to find the letter. One common theme of his letters was his horrible grammar. Some people thought it was on purpose to throw people off, but it quickly became clear that he was just not an intelligent person. That gives credence to the theory that his ability to get away with these crimes may have meant that he was more lucky than good. He gave details in the letter that only the killer would know, so it was obvious that the real murderer had left the note in the book in the library. That allowed him to disprove the prison rumors, retaining the notoriety for committing the crime. That's pretty typical, John, of narcissistic behavior. If you ever watch Criminal Minds when they're profiling people, narcissism is a common thing they will bring up for serial killers. Part of his letter read, It's hard to control myself. You probably call me psychotic with sexual perversion hang-up. He warned that he would strike again, noting, The code words for me will be bind them, torture them, kill them. BTK. And that's when he became labeled the BTK killer, or just BTK, depending on the news outlet that you were reading. But like I said, his next cooling off period was three years. And then after that, it's nine months, then eight years, then one year, and then five years. John, do we have any explanation as to why he's taking these random long breaks? Well, Jamie, it's very uncommon for serial killers to have such long breaks. Most of the time, their timeline escalates and their kills become more frequent. But we also don't see a lot of serial killers who have families and normal lives. If you look at the big life events for Raider, you start to see a pattern emerge. His son was born in 1975, which was the beginning of his three-year hiatus. His daughter was born in 1978, which was the beginning of his eight-year break. He changed jobs in 1989 in the middle of his last five-year cool-off period. In 1991, he took a job as a compliance officer and, as far as we know, took a 13-year break before deciding to kill again. Some speculate that his role as a compliance officer provided him ample opportunity to mistreat people, which ultimately kept Factor X at bay. Jamie, it's really impossible for us to know for sure, but it seems like his personal life dictated his killing schedule, at least to some degree. Unfortunately, John, despite the breaks, he always went back to killing. Raider's third murder took place on March 17, 1977. He'd actually targeted another woman at this time, and he had been stalking her, learning her routine, and he had made plans for how he would break in and kill her. However, when he got to her home, she wasn't there. And using his words, and he would use this often about when he got kind of in kill mode, he would say he was too teed up to wait for another opportunity. He had to kill that night because Factor X was too strong. But again, things were not going according to plan. He had one project, as he calls them, lined out, but that project was not available. He simply started walking around the neighborhood to select another target, and that's when he ran into Stephen Vianne, a six-year-old boy. 
Stephen had been sent by his mother, Shirley, to get some soup from the grocery store since the entire family was sick, including his siblings Bud, who was eight, and Stephanie, who was four. Raider told him he was an investigator and started asking him about some people he was looking for. A completely made-up story. After Stephen goes into the house, Raider went and knocked on the door and told Shirley that he was a detective looking for missing people. She let him in so that he could ask some questions. At that point, he pulled out a gun and told her that he had sexual fantasies that he needed to fulfill. He told her he's done it before and that it would be over quickly. The children there were obviously scared, and after attempting to tie them up, which he was unable to do, he eventually just locked them all in the bathroom. What's interesting, John, is that he actually took toys and blankets in there with them to try to keep them occupied while he did whatever he wanted to do with their mother. It's said that Shirley got so upset about everything, worried about her kids, that she started vomiting. Raider went to get her some water. He was trying to take care of her and get her feeling better so that he could enjoy the kill. Bud, the oldest child, was yelling from the bathroom and threatening Raider. Raider started arguing back with him, told him he was going to blow his head off. Since he was going back and forth with the children and they were really an unexpected problem, he decided to kill Shirley quickly. He doesn't want any more issues, so he choked her to death with the rope that he had her tied up with. Bud had actually broken out of the bathroom window, but by the time that he and the other kids had climbed out and gotten back to the house, their mother was already dead. It's nine months later, on December 8th, 1977, when he sets his sights on 25-year-old Nancy Fox. As he often did, Jamie, he stalked her and learned her schedule, and he learned her routine. The day that he broke into her house, he cut the phone line to the house and broke into her house while she wasn't home. When she entered, he told her the same thing that he had told Shirley Van, that he had a sexual fantasy that he needed to play out and that he would do so and be on his way. However, instead of her acting scared, Fox got angry and kept yelling at him over and over. She did not show the terror that all of his other victims had, and she tried to kick him out and continually told him that she was going to call the police. She asked him if she could go to the bathroom, and he let her do that. For the first time, and the only time that we know of, he gets undressed while she's in the bathroom. When she comes back in, he handcuffs her and ties her feet together. He tied a belt around her throat and strangled her to death. While he did not attempt to rape her, he had taken off his clothes, and she was able to grab him and put a pretty severe scratch on his scrotum. While he actually said that he enjoyed it, Jamie, he's really fortunate that this was not on a visible location on his body. If it had been reported that the victim had skin under her nails and he showed up with a large scratch on his face, there would be a chance that someone would have asked questions. But obviously, this was an injury that was never seen by anybody. After she's dead, we do see him masturbate in the house, and he leaves the house with her laying there. John, there's something else he did at these crime scenes that we've not mentioned. He actually took photos of himself and of his victims at every one of the murders, kind of like selfies but with a Polaroid. We'll get to the most disturbing instance later. But in addition to his trophies, he also had these photos to help him re relive his murders. That's an extra level of sick, in my opinion. Yeah, Jamie, you're right. And it's interesting that in these photos he wore a hood or he covered his face in some manner. But we have no evidence that he actually wore a hood or any kind of mask while he's committing these crimes. 
In fact, Jamie, that's how several of the victims knew that his initial story of being on the run or having a fantasy he wanted to play out was not true. They realized that if he wasn't covering his face, they probably weren't going to live to be able to tell police what he looked like. Shortly after murdering Nancy Fox in January of 1978, he reached back out to the public. He first called the police from a payphone and confessed to killing Fox. That recording would later be released to the public in hopes of getting help with the case. More than likely, he was proud that one of his murders finally went according to plan and that he wanted to gloat about it. He actually wrote a poem about the killing of Shirley Vianne. There's actually a story that his wife found the poem and that he convinced her that he was writing that poem as part of a criminal justice class where they were studying BTK. And she bought the story. Eventually, he actually sent that poem to a local newspaper, but he really didn't put any identifying information as far as him being BTK, so they kind of chucked it aside, and they thought it was a classified ad of some kind, and there was nothing identifying it as being related to BTK. A few weeks later, when that poem was never released, he wrote a letter to a news station claiming credit for all of his murders and comparing himself to... Ted Bundy and Son of Sam, two of the most notorious serial killers in American history. At this point, he was signing all of his letters with BTK. Rader said that he attempted another kill in April of 1979, but the lady never returned home. However, he did leave a note letting her know that BTK had been there and ready to kill her. That'd be horrible for somebody to walk in their house unassuming and find a note from BTK laying there. So I'm sure she was terrified in the nights and weeks to come. Jamie, he didn't murder again until April 27th, 1985. Now this was the longest he had gone between kills up to this point. Despite the long gap in time, the crime occurred a very short distance from his house. 53 year old Marine Hedge actually lived six houses down from Raider. She was also his oldest victim up to this point. John, living that close together, don't you think they would have known one another? Jamie, at the very least, I think they would probably be familiar with one another. I'm sure that they would wave at each other as they drive past on the street. And I would bet anything that she would have recognized him for sure. What we see Raider do at this point is he had taken his son to Boy Scout camp for the weekend. He faked being sick and told everyone he was lying down. At that point, he snuck off and went back to town. Now, he reported that he stopped at a bowling alley and had some beer, called a taxi, and told the driver that he was too drunk to drive. Raider had the driver let him out down the street from Marine's house so that he could walk off the nausea. He sneaks into her house and hides in the bedroom. Of course, she has a man with her because that always seems to be the case, right? So what he does is he just waits in in the closet for about an hour, listening to the two talk back and forth, and he stays completely hidden. He waits until the man leaves, and also waits until she falls asleep before he gets in bed with her. Now, obviously at this point she starts screaming, and in order to shut her up, he ends up strangling her with his own hands. Well, Jamie, this is the first time that he has killed somebody with his bare hands. Further breaking from his normal plans, he ties her up and he puts her in the trunk of her own car. He actually took her to his church. Once he got there, he posed her in several provocative poses. He put high heels on her and put makeup on her. And he took a ton of pictures. 
Again, he is using the Polaroid that he's used at other crime scenes. He allegedly had planted some plastic at the church with the intention of covering the windows for this. When he was finished, he dropped her body off in a ditch, and she was found nine days later. A year and a half later, on September 16, 1986, Raider locked on to 28-year-old Vicki Wagerly. Apparently, she played piano, and he really liked that about her. So, Jamie, what we see him do is he posed as a telephone repairman. He went door-to-door on the street, and then he approached her and asked if he could check her internal phone lines. He pulls his gun on her and tells her that he wants to fulfill some fantasies that he has. We see that she lays down on the bed, and her two-year-old is in the house with her. She fights back hard, and they actually fall off the bed on the opposite side of the door. She had been yelling that her husband was going to be coming home soon, and even though she may have been lying, he ended up acting quickly. He brought a new leather strap to strangle her with, but he ended up using a nylon sock. It took several hours before she had died, Jamie. Raider takes off in Wagerly's car and actually passes her husband, Bill, on the road. Now, he thought he recognized the car, but he dismissed it quickly because he saw a man driving it. So we see the husband get home. He found his child alone in the house, and it takes him almost an hour before he discovers his wife, who's laying on the side opposite of the door that she had fell off the bed. And he was just glancing room to room looking for her. Since there was nothing directly linking this to BTK, as he never had used a sock before, Bill became the lead suspect and was suspected by many for nearly 20 years before the truth came out that he had killed his own wife. Now, of course, Jamie, this ruined his life. Not only had he lost his wife, but in the eyes of his community and by so many that he loved, he was an accused killer. It was actually hard to track Raider and to pinpoint which crimes he was responsible for because his M.O. was kind of all over the place. He intended to strangle everyone, but he ended up shooting some people. He stabbed some people. Sometimes it was families. Other times it was single women. Sometimes he killed the children. Other times he didn't. He used six or seven different materials to strangle people with. And without his later confessions, we may not know which of these crimes he did commit. Before we get to the next crime, something fascinating happened in 1989 when he started working as a code compliance officer in Park City. Part of his training was to take a tour of the police station, and one element of that tour was to go into the detective's war room, where they were working on the biggest case in the area, BTK. He got to stand there and see the diagrams, the maps, the crime scene photos, and the profiles that had been assigned to his work. As a narcissist, I can't imagine a scenario that he would enjoy more than seeing so many officers and so many man hours going into trying to figure out who he was. A couple of years after he had been in that war room and seen the detectives obsessing over him is when we see his last known murder. It took place on January 19th, 1991. His target this time was 62-year-old Dolores Davis. For some reason, he was afraid to try and enter through the door in his traditional manipulative type of way. So he actually found a rock and he smashed the glass on the back door. He entered and then he gave her the speech about being on the run and needing money and he held her at gunpoint. For some reason, he put some pantyhose over his head before entering the home. He had never done that before, so it's hard to say why he did it. He tied her up and then he pretended to leave the home. This may have been to add terror 
to Ms. Davis, or it may have been to calm her down so that he could better manipulate her. But he then takes the pantyhose off of his head and he strangles her with it. She really didn't start to fight and scream until he had taken that off, because like John mentioned earlier, when she saw his face, that's when she realized that she probably wasn't going to live through this experience. Just like the Marine Hodge murder, he puts her in the trunk of her own car and he dumped the body under a bridge. She was found 13 days later. Another odd thing about this crime is that he had actually gone back to the house several times. He apparently dropped his gun while breaking in. He went back because he had left a rope. It seemed like yet another sloppy crime that Dennis Rader had gotten away with. Jamie, it's reported that he had stalked several women and some of those had actually filed restraining orders against him. He would also go on record as saying that he was too rough with prostitutes and many of them refused to work with him. So basically, while he's taking these breaks from the killings, he's still finding ways to torture people. And perhaps many of those that he stalked could have been potential victims if they hadn't reported them. So John, before he was able to kill again, he was caught in a pretty ridiculous way, I believe. Absolutely. After the killing of Dolores Davis, BTK seemed to disappear for about 13 years. But on the 30th anniversary of the Ortero murders, stories started being run on the news about BTK. After 13 years of inactivity, Raiders saw his work back in the limelight. Now, he couldn't pass up this opportunity to gloat. Beginning in March 2004, Raiders started sending letters to the police and leaving packages to be found containing evidence from his crimes. He signed many of those letters, Bill Thomas Kilman, BTK. In these letters, he claimed some of the crimes that he had committed. He left crime scene photos. He left driver's license of the victims. He left a word puzzle that ultimately included the name Raider in it. He also left drawings of the crime scenes and even an outline for the BTK story that needed to be told. In total, he sent 11 communications to the police, but his communications came back to bite him. In January 2005, there was video surveillance that caught his Jeep Cherokee driving away, leaving a cereal box that was apparently there to symbolize a child he had killed. While they didn't identify him from that immediately, it certainly came in useful later on. Jamie, he developed a rapport with Lieutenant Ken Landweir, which responded to many of his letters. Also in January, he sent a letter asking Ken if a floppy disk could be tracked if he sent that in. He was told that it could not be traced via an encrypted classified ad upon his request. On February 16, 2005, Raider sent in a purple 1.44 megabyte floppy disk to Fox TV and KSAS TV in Wichita. Upon analyzing the floppy disk, they found a deleted file that contained metadata, which is information that's recorded about when, where, and by whom a document's created. They saw this particular deleted item was created by someone named Dennis at Christ Lutheran Church. A quick Google search revealed that Dennis Rader was the president of the church council at Christ Lutheran Church. And once they discovered that Rader also drove a Jeep Cherokee that matched the one on the surveillance video from a month earlier, they knew they had their guy. So, John, you're telling me that this guy that had gotten away with murder for over 30 years got caught because he trusted a cop when he told him that he couldn't trace a floppy disk. Now, let me also say... He was still using a floppy disk in 2005. 
Jamie, when I'm reading the research that you presented on this case, I had to recheck the date over and over because I'm thinking we didn't have floppy disks in 2005. We had moved on to flash drives and other means like DVDs and CD-ROMs and stuff. So why is this guy still using a floppy disk in 2005? Jamie, if you happen to be under the age of 30, it's very likely that you may have never seen a floppy disk before. So to give our listeners a idea of what that was back in like 1994 we would use these to play games on our computers they would have loaded games on them and later on in elementary school we would use these to eventually write papers and save our stuff on so it was an archaic form of a of a disk drive right yeah it's something that we certainly don't use before it it would hold minimal data and i have not seen a computer that would accept one of those in decades Yeah, certainly 2005, this would be a very old form of saving data. I think that just goes to support the idea that he just really wasn't that intelligent. It seems that he was more lucky than good. At this point, they had a lot of circumstantial evidence, but they wanted something more concrete. So they actually obtained some of his DNA from his daughter via a doctor's visit and compared that DNA to some found under the fingernails of Vicki Wagerly. The results showed that DNA matched a relative of the donor, and that's all they needed to make an arrest. Jamie, on February 25th, 2005, Raider was taken into custody. Upon searching his home, his vehicle, and the church, they found lists of names of potential victims, dozens of photos of the crimes, and potential items to be used for the strangulations. Once they started feeding Raider's ego, he started confessing to everything. On February 28, 2005, Raider was charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder. On March 1, 2005, Raider's bail was set at $10 million and a public defender was appointed to represent him. Moving forward to May 3, the judge entered a non-guilty plea on Raider's behalf as Raider did not speak at his arraignment. However, on June 27, the scheduled trial date, Raider changed his plea to guilty. He described the murders in detail and made no apologies. At Raider's August 18th sentencing, the victim's families made statements, after which Raider apologized in a rambling 30-minute monologue that the prosecutor likened to an Academy Awards acceptance speech. Jamie, he was sentenced to 10 consecutive life sentences with a minimum of 175 years. Now, Kansas did not have a death penalty at the time of the murders, so he was not facing that sentence. According to witnesses on the way to his new prison at El Dorado Correctional Facility, he talked about topics regarding the weather and didn't really have anything important to say. However, when the statements came on the radio from the victim's family, it's reported that he started to cry. He is now in solitary confinement for his protection, He currently gets one hour of exercise per day and showers three times per week. This will likely continue indefinitely. In 2006, he was allowed access to television and radio. He was able to read magazines and gained other privileges for good behavior. Rader is offered to write a book. He says it's in order to get all the details out and to give proceeds to the victim's family. He's trying to say that this is an act to help and to find some redemption for what he's done. Some others believe this just a way for him to keep his name out there and to give him a reason to relive these murders. Stephen King published a book called The Good Marriage in 2010, which he said was inspired by BTK. And when he made that statement, 
Raiders' daughter, Carrie Rawson, was very upset. And she publicly came out and called King out for exploiting the families involved in these murders. And including her own, she actually considers her family one of the victims of Raiders' crimes because it tore her family apart. This is the only time that his family has ever spoken out on the issue. Stephen King went ahead and published the book, and it was actually made into a movie in 2014, and it has absolutely atrocious reviews on Rotten Tomatoes if you want to check that out. Again, that's called The Good Marriage. There's debate, John, on whether or not these were his only crimes. He actually tried to claim a few others in his letters, but those claims were actually proven false. Some theorize that he actually committed murders before 1974, but that he would never admit to those. Because any murders he committed in or before 1972 could potentially be punished by the death penalty. And as John mentioned earlier, the death penalty was banned in Kansas at the time of the murders that he admitted to. Jamie, it seems like this guy really loves the attention, so I think he would have been eager to claim any and all murders that he could at that point. John, I agree. I think the cases we've covered here today are all crimes that he committed, and I think that's kind of the extent of the murders that he was able to carry out. I do think there were probably some other crimes he committed. You mentioned the uh, rough treatment of prostitutes and stalking folks, but I think we have the complete list of murders that BTK committed. So, Jamie, why are we so fascinated with serial killers? What is America's obsession that's tough, John. I, I mentioned Son of Sam and Ted Bundy earlier as people that BTK looked up to and compared himself to. You think back to Jack the Ripper. We covered Donald Harvey on a previous episode. There's so many out there, and they really do have a sense of fame about them. And I mean, it would be hypocritical for me to say that I'm not interested in that as well as somebody who hosts a true crime podcast. But I don't know where that fascination comes from. Is it because these people are able to commit something so atrocious and get away with it and continue to do it? Are we enamored by the fact that they're able to get away with these crimes that some of us would never imagine committing? Jamie, I certainly think that could contribute to it. I think the likelihood of someone becoming a serial killer is so low that we're just drawn to these people because we, at least for me, want to understand why are they able to do the things that they do? Uh, you mentioned earlier in the show that it's reported his childhood was seemed somewhat normal, but we did see reports of him torturing animals. So for me, I'm interested in this because I want to understand the psychology going on in these folks' minds. You know, what happened or what, what is going on with their mental health that would cause them to treat people in such a harmful way and what would lead them to ultimately kill as BTK did 10 people or more. So it's just really interesting for me to understand the human brain and try to figure out what's going on and hopefully prevent more of these in the future. No, I think that's great. And I think that's why there are profilers out there that can understand the minds of these individuals. And like you said, hopefully help to identify them earlier so that we can help prevent further people from being hurt. And there were several opportunities in this case for people to identify Dennis Rader and to stop him from committing these murders, but he continued to be very unfortunately fortunate in committing these sloppy crimes to be able to go 30 years without being caught and have a victim list of 10 with so many cooling down periods 
And what makes Dennis Rader and BTK so unique, really, we mentioned earlier, is those cooling down periods and the fact that he had a family and that he went home through the week and tucked his kids into bed and he helped with Boy Scouts and he worked at his church and he had a marriage where his wife thought he was a great guy. And all those things are really what set him apart. And I think that's why I was interested enough to do the research for this case. Yeah, Jamie, as as I was reading the research as well, I thought about his family life. I wondered what kind of husband he was. Did his wife have any speculation that he could be doing something outside their home that was so atrocious, such as these murders? I wondered what kind of dad he was. You know, we saw earlier in one of the homes that he was in, he actually took the time to stop what he was doing to the children's mother and give them toys to play with. So even in the midst of this brutality, you could see his fatherly manners coming out. So he was certainly an interesting guy, and this was a very interesting case to cover. As much as I would like for us not to be sitting here talking about these 10 victims, at least we can say that we have a closure on this case. We know that he did these crimes. And at the end of the day, I think justice was served. He got 10 life sentences to run consecutively. So we're going to see justice served for each one of these victims. And, you know, like I said, I hate it for these victims. I hate that uh, they their lives were so tragically ended. But at least we can sit here and say that he's in jail. He's never going to have the opportunity to do this again. And justice was served. There you have it. I completely agree. This was an interesting case to research and to talk about. So we appreciate you guys listening in. We thank you for a lot of the recent follows we've gotten on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook at True Crime Cast. You can also contact us at truecrimecast at gmail.com. As Jamie mentioned earlier, we're really wanting to grow this podcast and get our material out to as many listeners as possible. And one way that you can help us do that is to leave a rating and a review on iTunes or any other source that you download your podcast from, please don't forget to check out the one-week free trial of HBO on Amazon Prime. You can find the link to that in the show notes below, or you can find that link on our Facebook and Twitter page. So, Jamie, next time we come here, I want to talk about have we been watching any of these free shows that we now have access to. I'm excited to start Game of Thrones and check that out. That sounds great, John, and I hope our listeners join in that conversation as well. Uh, Hit us up on social media and let us know what you've watched and what you've liked. Guys, as always, thank you so much for being a listener of True Crimecast. Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up. Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in in a few minutes. (laughs) Instacart for the win. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.